Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Tuesday, January the 19th, and this is episode 2808 of the Survival Podcast. Today we're going to talk about understanding and using permaculture principles, and I'm going to use my clairvoyancy here to say that about half the audience just went, yes, and another half of the audience just went, uh, hey, give me a chance here. Let me, let me frame it for you this way. I know not everybody in this audience is into growing your own food, and certainly not everybody in this audience is into permaculture, which as we'll discover today are two vastly different things, by the way. However, if you turn away from permaculture, what you're turning away from is knowledge that comes from a design science that can improve most of the problems that we have in the world with low-tech, low-energy application of solution. You're turning away from not the solution to all our problems, but many solutions to many of our problems. Now, I really want you to think about that. You're turning down knowledge when you turn down permaculture. You don't have to have a garden to use permaculture principles. If you start using permaculture principles, my guess is that sooner or later you'll probably have a garden of some sort. But the two are not the same thing. And what I'm going to give you today are the 12 principles espoused by David Holmgren, who is the co-founder, along with Bill Mollison, of the design science we call permaculture today. And there are actually dozens, if not hundreds, of permaculture principles out there. There's probably... Hundreds yet to be stated. But these 12 give a really great framework from one of the, the science's founders. And, and I want you to understand that today as we go through this. Permaculture is first and foremost a design science. It's that before everything else that we can use to describe it. And if we don't start there, we tend to not truly understand what it's all about and what its purpose is. So many people describe permaculture as permanent agriculture. And I can understand why. And I've even been guilty of it myself. And it's not untrue. It's just not true. And here's what I mean by that. Permaculture is, again, a design science that chiefly exists so that we can derive everything we need as humans from natural systems without destroying that which we depend on to obtain those natural systems from, our own planet. So permaculture is about how we house ourselves. It's about how we deal with our, our waste products, whether they be the waste that we think of that goes into a rubbish can and gets put out by the side and the garbage man takes it away, or whether it be the waste pro pro uh, product that comes out of our fourth point of contact, also known as our ass, right? Like all of our waste products. What does that have to do with agriculture other than agriculture produces a shit ton of waste? Aren't there many things in our life that provide a surplus that we end up calling a pollution or a waste stream that are not directly tied to agriculture? See what I'm saying? What about your house? You know, a lot of you, I'm never going to, you know, I'm never going to garden, never going to have a farm, never anything. That's fine. Do you have a house? Would you like your house to be reactive housing that actually heats and cools itself? Permaculture has solutions for that. 
doesn't mean everybody's going to be able to implement them. You'll find if you start walking this path, the biggest impediment to progress is the state itself and regulation and control. We won't get deep into that today. We're not going to go political today, but it's the truth. What about water? We can use permaculture principles to take dirty water and make it clean. Kind of a really important thing in the world today. What about how to manage a business? We can use these principles to manage a business. I've done whole shows on just that. We won't go deep into that today, but you can. Or managing communities and interpersonal relationships. Creating our own autonomous forms of governance outside of the state systems. Creating our own systems of finance. It's based on permaculture design. Or I would say permaculture design can help you do that. Would be a, maybe a better way to put it. There's people, and this is this is something David Holgram said quite often, or continues to say quite often when you, when he actually speaks out, that there are many things that people do that may not be in a book somewhere or being taught as permaculture that are permaculture principles or based on the principles of permaculture. They're quite valid tactics and techniques to be employed by individuals who are practicing permaculture. Because it's not limited to this tiny space that people see it as. We'll talk about all that more in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one, is Ready Made Resources, the company that says what it does and does what it says. All the resources you need ready made, ready to go on their website, point, click, and buy. Great pricing, great service, great selection. It's all there. At the company that does what it says and says what it does, readymaderesources.com. Next up today, knifekits.com. I really think that knife kits just offer so much more than I think people realize on the surface. First and foremost, making knives is cool. We'll just go with that, right? And a lot of people take this up as a hobby or a side hustle or just something you know, to do, right? That's great, too. It can be some source of income. It can just be making an heirloom to hand down to your family. It can be a project with your kids, I don't think you could make a knife with your son or daughter and then after you're gone, do not value that knife for at least 100 times more than it's worth financially. There's just so much from it. It's a way to learn skill sets. It's a way to learn that you can do things that maybe you don't think you can. Our country's gone from a country where most men and women, frankly, could do 100 things well to a place where every time you need something done that you're not familiar with, you call a guy. You can reverse that by developing skill sets. Knife kits is one way that you can do that. And again, what we're talking about here is building family heirlooms. That's just as cool as shit to me. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Okay, so let us continue to dig into this concept of permaculture. Uh, you know, again, I, I really feel the entire discipline is largely misunderstood by people that only see, you know, a couple videos or they just hear the word and they kind of sort of know what it means. It, it seems that most people either see it as like, well, it's organic farming on steroids. Like it's like beyond organic farming or something like that. And, and, and that is such a limited viewpoint of it. And then there's like a completely twisted viewpoint of it that I think is somewhat caused intentionally by people that want to change permaculture into what they wish it was instead of what it is. And that is that it's like some, some hippy dippy lefty mud rolling eco leftist ideology. Like it's for vegans and people that roll around in the mud and contemplate their navel and you know white white boys in dreadlocks or I, I don't know like there is a whole group of people that think that's what permaculture is supposed to be and there's a whole group of people that think that's what it is 
and it's not. Permaculture was founded by two men who are both most akin to anarchists. That's not because I'm one and I like that. It's because it's true. Um, the gentleman we're speaking about mostly today, David Holgram, one of the co-founders, is not just a guy that looks like an anarchist. He's an anarchist. Like, if you say, what is your political ideology? He's like, I don't have one. I'm an anarchist. So you've got one half of the equation, flat-out proclaimed anarchist. And you've got the other side, Bill Mollison, the better known of the two, who said of permaculture, we have no room for politicians, priests, bureaucrats, And the only rules that we follow are care of the earth, care of people, and return of the surplus to those two. That, that's about as anarcho as you can get without tattooing a big A on your arm. right? So we're coming at this from a standpoint of things that work based on what you can do versus policy that is required of you from other people. And that's where... Everything you're going to hear about comes from today. And again, it's so much larger than farming. Because building a house can be completely independent of farming. Or let's say horticulture, growing growing food. I don't know that it should be. I think the, the, the day that we decided that we would create housing and not incorporate into that housing means to sustain people beyond four walls and a roof was when humanity began its downfall. I really do. When we outsourced our basic needs to people thousands of miles away, we gave up our autonomy and our freedom. But it's still the case that this discipline is so much larger than just how to grow stuff. And it's as we come at today, we really need to think about the difference between techniques and principles and why that is so important. So one of the very big misconceptions that I see from people is they'll find out a little bit about permaculture, they'll research a little bit about it, they'll learn a few techniques that are incorporated in permaculture, and then they equate the technique with permaculture. So if you're, and I've heard this from people who are you know decent at growing food, by the way, well, I don't really want to do permaculture because I don't want to put swales in my yard. Who said you had to put swales in your yard? Well, that's what permaculture is. It's swales. No. You know, that's <laughs> that's like saying architecture is bricklaying. Right? So architecture is the design of, of structures. And bricklaying is one technique within the construction of a, of, 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 a, of, a, of a structure that would be designed by an architect. Like, you, you would really just look at somebody that said, well, I don't want to be an architect because I don't want bricks. And you would just scratch your head and wonder, where do you get your bullshit from? With permaculture, I know where you get your bullshit from. You get it from YouTube videos by people that make videos about permaculture that don't know what permaculture is themselves, that are propagating the, the, this mythology, right? So it's, it's not techniques. Techniques are but arrows in the quiver. And the archer chooses which arrow at which time and when to draw the bow and when to release it, right? That's how you have to start looking at this. So if we look at permaculture and then you look at people that say, well, I don't want to do permaculture because I don't, I don't like swells. You say, well, what do you do to grow your food? I sheet mulch. Well, that's a permaculture technique. It's just a matter of where you incorporate it in your design. So then we back up from techniques to principles. And principles aren't what you should think but rather how you should think about a thing. And I know people 
kind of bristle at the term how to think or how you should think because that can be taken two ways. And one of them is very negative. And one really isn't how, but what, right? So people say, well, you know, you're telling me how to think. And usually when it's negative, that's not really what you're being told. You're being told it's under the auspices of how to think. But in the end, you're being given a conclusion that you must come up with or you're wrong. That's not how to think. That's what to think, which conclusion to draw. When we, we talk about principles, we're talking about how to think about a thing so that the problem itself becomes independent of the methodology. If we follow a certain given group of principles and we develop over time as we educate ourselves and, and, and learn from direct feedback, we add our own principles and our own components to them, we get into a point where what we're really talking about here is the proper application of that mental computer I'm always telling you about, your brain. Because if you are truly a permaculturist, when presented with a problem, the last thing you do is accept the problem as something that can't be solved. It would be the very last thing you could do. You instead start asking, what are my solutions to this problem? You also ask, like, is this problem even a problem? How can this problem become the solution? Is this problem avoidable? What is the, what, where does this problem, if it's an element, sit in the scale of permanence? If it's a mountain, we have to design around it because it ain't moving. If it's a way of thinking, it's one of the easiest things to change once minds open. And it fall, will fall somewhere in between there. A small pile of dirt that makes an area a little bit higher than you want it for your design is very low in the scale of permanence. It's very easy to change. And once we start thinking along these lines, it, it, it instantly moves to the point where almost nothing is insurmountable. That doesn't always mean we implement the solution that we come up with. Sometimes we realize the solution is so high in energy, it has a negative return, what have you, that we find another way to design around the issue rather than design through it. But that's what it's really all about, is this way of coming to anything. And instead of saying, I'm going to make this do what I want, I'm going to understand what this already does, I'm going to think about my wants and my needs, and the wants and needs of anybody else connected to this system, whether that be partners, neighbors that maybe don't want to be directly involved, but you still are going to affect them, uh, supply chains that you might be providing things to, supply chains that you might need to draw from, you're going to think about all of those things and how they relate to what you're trying to accomplish, accepting that there are certain things that are the way that they are, and they either need to be harnessed, designed around, or accepted as limitations. And as Jeff Lawton says, the more limitations on a design, the more elegant the design, if the designer is good at his trade. So let's start off with principle one from David Holgram. Observe and interact. And each one of these in the notes, if you go look them up, I have in parentheses like my expounded thoughts on them. And I think with this one, it's important to think about observing and interacting before, during, and after the implementation of design. So when you move on to a property, it's really easy to get excited right away and decide this is what I want and, and start designing. And not only designing on paper, which is fine, but designing in reality, which may or may not be so fine. So it's one thing to say, 
I really think that's a good garden spot right there. And I really think keyhole gardens is what I want. And so then to sketch out what that might look like and to start considering it as an element of design and how it will interact with everything else on your property. It's a totally different thing to run down to Home Depot or Lowe's, buy a whole shitload of those um, those preformed blocks that make retaining walls, and just build a keyhole garden where you thought it would go. Because once you put that there, and it's a main st mainstay component of your system, it then becomes a focal point that you have to design from rather than to. And if you nail it, and it goes exactly where it should go, right, then great. But if you orient it wrong based on your solar aspect, or you don't take into account heavy spring winds, and so you didn't, you put it so close to a property line that it's not feasible now to go in and plant some sort of shrubbery for a windbreak. These are just examples. Then you failed the before portion of the observation interaction. You, 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 you probably need to do something like we teach in permaculture design where we would do a sector map. Where's my wind? Where's my sun? Where's my noise? Right? Where are all the energies that come onto and off this property? And where, what sectors do they work in? And this is usually done in, in more of like a circular diagram. And so your solar aspect is going to incorporate maybe about 180 degrees of that, and it will alter throughout your seasons. Whereas a bad view may really be one small narrow area or one broad one, it depends. Your wind may be a fairly narrow band of heavy winds, but they may be totally different winds in the fall and the spring. A lot of this you get through direct observation. You sit there and you go outside and say, here's a shadow map, right? You just kind of map out where the shadows are and what have you. Uh, here's it, It's March and the wind is coming from the east and it has all month long. So my primary spring winds are eastern. Some of those you can you can get the information much faster by checking weather records and things like that. Right? You can use a an app called Sunseeker and you put that on your phone and you can go outside and you can see exactly what the path of the sun will be on any day of the year but specifically on your solstices and, and, and your equinoxes. So then you can figure out where your shadows are going to lie, and you can design with them in mind. But we have to observe either in real time or from recorded information before we start making major design decisions, or we risk putting elements in places that are poorly chosen. We're all guilty of this, including me, because you get excited when you get on your own property. You want to then, once you put in these design elements, continue this process of observation and interaction during... And then after the completion of the, of, of the element, you still want to maintain that in the after phase and continue to adjust. And let's adjust this to a business. When we go into a business, like I've had to go into businesses that were being poorly run and being given a position of authority and saying, do what you want, it's your ship, now you're the captain. Well, if you go into that like a wrecking ball and you start making decisions before you fully understand the people in that business, they will hate you, even if you're right. And what you do will fail even if it was the right decision because it will be implemented poorly. And if you nail it and you do everything right going in, if something changes along the way during the process of retooling a division or a company, you have to continue to adjust. And then once everything's 
fine sailing ahead and it's working well and you've done your job. That process has to continue, which, by the way, for most situations where you go into like that, somebody did it right in the beginning or it wouldn't have been successful to begin with, and it was the after phase where everything went wrong, where everybody started coasting and letting other people pedal, and that's where it went downhill. So it's important that we do this throughout the entire lifetime of the system, whether it be a garden, whether it be a community, whether it be a business, it doesn't matter. Next, catch and store energy. And this is one place that I think humans in our modern vocabulary have become inherently limited in our thinking. So when I say energy, what is the first word that pops into your mind? And for most people, it will be electricity or power. But when I say energy, most people will immediately think about the fact that you can flip a light switch and a bulb lights up. Or that you can turn on a box on your wall and heat comes out of a hole or cold comes out of a hole, depending on what time of year it is and how you, how you turn the knob on that box. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with thinking electricity is a form of energy, because it is. And it's certainly one we really need to consider. But our limited thinking that limits our capacity as designers when it comes to housing, gardens, everything humans depend on, is that we think about it almost exclusively from the standpoint of energy in the form of electricity or power. But let's, let's go down that path a little bit and think about how quickly we branch from there. So one of the things that you might want to do when you are thinking about your use of energy is make your house warm. So even if it's not electricity, right, it could be some form of heat. So we burn wood. We get heat. What's the battery? See, when you want to catch and store energy, you need a battery. So if we're burning wood in a wood stove to heat our home, what's the battery? Wood. The tree's the battery. The tree that used photosynthesis to build biomass and create what we can call wood created a battery of energy. You're actually looking, when you look at a log that you're going to burn, you're looking at stored solar energy in the form of a wood battery. And we release it through a thermal reaction we call burning, and the heat that radiates from that log originated in the star we call our sun. And that wood is the battery. If we're really thinking, what else is a battery? Well, if we've designed our house properly and components of our home, some of that heat will be absorbed into those structures and then radiated out over time even after the fire goes out. So now what is, what is the battery? If you're doing a rocket mass heater a la Paul Wheaton, that big thermal mass is a battery. If you have a masonry fireplace, that is a battery. If we build our home with the right type of foundation and the sun strikes our windows on our south side in the winter and heats up our foundation, the earth under the foundation becomes a battery. When we are building systems that are, let's say, aquaponics systems, our large tank of reserve water is a battery. It's a battery so that it can be drawn and returned in the form of something like ebb and flow. It's a battery thermally in that it takes a lot more time to move the temperature of water than air, so in the right location it can help maintain a cool or a warm system, even from one single system, depending on what time of year it is, it will do both things for us. If we put in a greenhouse, and we just put in a straight greenhouse, we just put a greenhouse in, we have no battery. 
And if the temperature outside is 50 degrees and sunny on a, on a kind of warm winter's day, the temperature in that greenhouse will be something like 90 or 100 degrees. We probably need to open it at the hottest part of the day to vent it because it will be too hot. That's a surplus of energy being lost. We'll get to that in a minute, right? But riddle me this, Batman, right? If the temperature in the greenhouse is 90 degrees right before the sun goes down, and we close the greenhouse up, and we've done nothing really to create additional battery within that greenhouse, two hours after the sun goes down, when it's 28 degrees outside, what's the temperature in the greenhouse? And it will be within a degree or two of 28 degrees. It will be the same temperature inside and outside because you have no battery. Now, what if we build a thermal battery out of the earth? We bury pipes under the greenhouse. We have a pipe that runs across the back eave of the greenhouse where the hottest air is. And we run a tiny little fan that takes 50 cents a day or less to run. And we blow air from the hot point of the greenhouse down into the earth and back up. Interesting thing. Since the earth has a constant temperature, once you're down a certain depth, we will cool the greenhouse during the hottest part of the day or the hottest part of the year. We're using the earth as a battery for cool. However, if we're sucking hot air into the earth, we'll actually warm the earth. And if we insulate around the hole, so we, we dig a hole, we put insulated foam board around it and under that, and then we refill the earth with our layers of pipe, we'll actually warm that. And then at night, the air that's coming out being warmer than the surrounding air will actually warm the greenhouse with the same thing that cooled it earlier because now we thought of the dirt as a battery. And how many places can we do this? Every place is what we should be thinking about. Catch and store energy. Let's think about something as simple as a sunflower. How much energy is there in all the seeds from one large black oil sunflower, the answer is a lot. It's very high in fat oil, right? If you doubt me, go get, I don't know, a two-ounce little bottle, fill it with sunflower oil, poke a hole in the lid, stick something that makes a wick through it, make a candle and see how long it burns. There's probably more than two ounces of oil in one large black oil sunflower head. So are you not catching and storing energy? If we turn it into some sort of biodiesel, the energy gets used that way. If we feed it to our ducks or our chickens, the energy gets processed by the bird, used by the bird, and converted into meat and or eggs for us. And if we then allow them to use that energy... To process compost for us, that energy is being recycled into fertility. Just think about this. In every element that you put into a design, does it provide you the opportunity to catch and store and use energy later? How can it be a battery? And it will change everything about the way you design things. Next, obtain a yield is number three. And I always put this the way systems should be producers versus consumers. And this is where I want to talk a little bit about how things that are not necessarily called permaculture are often permaculture. Way, way back when I first started this show, I'm talking like the first or second month, I did a show called From Home to Homestead. And I talked about changing our houses from consumers, which most homes are consumers, 
into producers. And that if you were putting more energy into your home than it was providing back to you in the form of food and, 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 and shelter and everything else a home does for us, that your home was a liability. And the only way your house could be an asset is you had to turn it into something that was productive for you. At that time, I had barely heard the word permaculture, and I thought permaculture meant instead of planting corn, you planted trees. I thought it was that limited. You tell me that's not, a, that's not exactly this principle of obtaining a yield from your home. Your home should be a part of your design of your life. Well, what if your home gives you no yield? Do you know what you call something that gives you no yield? A hole. It's a hole, like a black hole. Things go in and never come back out. It's a consumer. It sucks at your very life and livelihood. So obtaining a yield is also obtaining a profit. And that profit can be monetary. It can be material. It can be through pure enjoyment, spiritual return. But everything we do should do something for someone or something else in the form of a yield. It doesn't always have to be like trophy hunter mentality. What does it do for me? If we do enough for everyone, we'll have enough for ourselves. And everyone includes little critters. So when I go out and I plant a whole shitload of flowering, especially flowering perennial herbs... Some of them may be medicinal, some of them may be edible, but the main reason I plant them is for bugs. Insects, call them what you want. If you want to be technically accurate, most of them are insects. Not all. There's arachnids in that formula as well. But I'm worried about all those little different wasps that come in. All those different pollinators and bees. They're useful to me. But even if I'm planting something that I don't really get any direct result from, It's for them. The, the, the nectar on the pollen is a yield. I've obtained a yield for my insect allies. Because the more insects I have, the better off I am. I know that's counter to what we've been taught. And we'll hear more about that in a few moments. But we need lots of insects for healthy ecosystems. So obtain a yield. Next, apply self-regulation and accept feedback. I've always described this as give before you take. And this is another thing that I, I, I used this extensively before I understood what permaculture was. With very simple practical things. When we got our first Berkey water filter system, and I realized that I was the one doing everything, and everybody else was taking in my household, my wife and my son. So I got the Berkey, I got it all set up nice, and then I went out and I bought really great, stainless steel water bottles. And I would fill up the Berkey, and I would fill up the water bottles, and then I would put the water bottles in the refrigerator. And when I would finish a water bottle and want to fill it back up, I would take it and into the sink, and I would wash it out with some hot water, and then I would fill it up with cool water, and I would dump it in the top of the Berkey, And then I would fill the water bottle back up with fresh water, put the lid on it, put it back in the refrigerator. And as long as I was the only one using the water, we never ran out. But when Dorothy and Matthew were using it, they would take out a water bottle, drink the water, put it in the sink. And then if all the water bottles were empty, they would take a water bottle and go to the Berkey and fill it up 
a problem, don't you? Eventually, it's going to be empty, and you're going to have to wait for more, right? That is not giving before you take. And so I started saying that and to the point where they actually got annoyed with me, but they started doing it, and they realized by giving to the filter before you took from it, you ended up ahead. That's accept, accepting self-regulation and feedback. This thing will not work unless we're putting something in before we take away from it. We can only, And we can only take so much. So a lot of things that I plant are thought of as annuals, but they're self-propagating. I generally just leave some sweet potatoes in the ground, and with my climate, I really mulch heavily over them. And that way, a couple or three will send up some shoots. Well, now I can replant all of all of those. Um, I can replant all my sweet potato needs for everything that I do, just because I left a little bit behind. That would be an example. If we move into a place that's forested and we're developing gardens, we can absolutely go into that forested component, move some of the, the, the debris, the leaves and, and, and duff and stuff out of the way, and take some of that forest soil and apply it to our garden as an inoculum. We can't go in there and strip mine the forest soil and use it in our gardens. Like, that's not, that's not self-regulation. Now we're taking from that system more than it can produce faster than it can produce it. That's a terrible, terrible thing to do. It's strip mining the forest instead of doing strip mining for coal or for rare earth elements. It's the same thing. We always have to, again, apply regulation to ourselves, limit how much we take, and accept feedback. If we take something and it makes more, then we need to say, well, how did that happen? How often can we do this? Can we actually have more through harvesting? There's plants that the more you harvest them, the more they produce. Most of your pole bean varieties are that way. You let a pole bean grow, and you leave the beans on it, and they slowly go to a dry bean, and they don't produce that much. But if every time the beans that are on there are the size where they're consumed well as a green vegetable, if you pick them, they make more. There's plants that it seems like the more you prune them, the more growth they put out. These are plants that are great for producing biomass through compassing. Even with that, though, there's probably a limit. If we cut, chop, and drop too much, that plant will die. It will eventually take all of its reserve energy and to be depleted. Sometimes we want this when we're mimicking forest secession. Sometimes we want this to be a long-term element in a design. We need to apply our own regulation to our own activity, because if we don't, who's gonna? This is also very much an anarchical principle. If you don't want to be regulated by authority, then you have to be the authority that regulates yourself. Let's move on from there. Use and value renewable resources. Now, this is one that I think is really easy to understand on the surface, because obviously using something that's recycled is better than using something that's a one-time use implement. Right? But we have to think beyond just recycling and, and renewable resources in the way that it's used in so much greenwashing today. What I really want you to think about is the lifetime cost beyond just money. So not don't throw money out, but let's not only look at money. Let's look at the true lifetime cost of something we decide to do. So if we go in and we say, hey, there's enough forest here to cut down enough trees to build my house. And that's going to save me a ton of money. Maybe it's a good idea. Maybe it's not. What if one of the trees that you're going to cut 
is a 300-year-old old-growth oak that has another 600 years of life in it. Probably shouldn't cut that one. What if you have to clear-cut an acre to build your house? What's the lifetime cost of clear-cutting that acre? Sometimes timber harvest makes a lot of sense. Sometimes it doesn't. Often it will make sense if it's done properly. But we need to think about the total cost in what we're doing. Often doing something will financially cost more money in the short term, right? But if it's longevity that we're looking for, then what happens to the lifetime cost of a thing? So maybe building a house that's self-regulating on temperature will cost us 20% more. But what is now the cost of the house over 20 or 30 or 40 years? Building a house the way we build them today, I think the, if a house has a 50-year life cycle today, we're lucky. We're lucky. And people don't worry about it because, you know, the house was built 10 years ago and people sell their house every five to seven years and somebody will remodel it and eventually it'll be torn down and rebuilt at some other time in the future. It's not my problem. We didn't used to think this way. The home my father lives in today was built in the 1860s. 1860s. And I can tell you from personal experience, if you go down in the basement and try to put a nail into the joist, the, the oak wood joist that makes the floor up, you better have a hammer drill and you better be pounding one of those nails into it that looks like a peg, like a steel peg. I don't know what you call those things. Because if you try to pound a 10-penny nail into that timber that was built again in the 1860s, it won't go in. And when you drill it, it's like drilling concrete and it will smoke and you will burn up a bit if you're not careful. Do you think anything we're building today is like that? But wouldn't we be better off if that's what we were building? If we were thinking about how will this home serve one of my grandchildren when I'm dead? We might apply this principle a little bit better to our homes, but in everything that we do. Next principle, number six, produce no waste. And I'm back to Bill Mollison said about pollution. Pollution is a wasted resource. We have actually really done a disservice to our planet and our people by accepting the fact that garbage is a necessity, that we must have landfills and we must have garbage. And we've even regulated ourselves into a system that almost makes it a requirement even though it isn't. I want you to think about the things that you throw away and how many of them really can't be used again or transformed into something else. So let's think about one of the primary waste streams that people throw out of their home, your food. Okay, that's compost. Paper and cardboard. Okay, that's compostable. Plastic. Okay, most of it can be recycled if we would only do so. So now what? Metal. Almost every metal is recyclable. Almost every single one. Glass, recyclable. What, what do we really need to be putting into our landfills? And the answer is not much. Why do we do it? It's easy. 
And this is something that people just fail to understand. We built an industry on it. You want to get your tires knifed? Go into a large city and propose a valid solution to solid waste. And the people that run the garbage industry will treat you as though you are an opposing mafia family. With And I'm talking actual threats of physical violence. I know people it happened to. I know people, I worked as a consultant on a project that was going to be trialed in Austin, Texas, on taking waste streams and turning them into resources and energy. And the people behind the project, I'm telling you, were physically threatened with violence if they didn't shut up and go away. And it wasn't by government. It was by basically a waste stream cartel. The people that, that own the trucks that remove the garbage. The people that profit from the waste stream threatened the people that threatened the waste stream. So this is one of those situations where there are big solutions we can implement, but what can't, what can't be got, you're the one that decides what you put at the curb, if that makes sense. So I think producing no waste is a great goal, and that should be our goal. But much like a religious goal, like where our goal is to follow all the rules and be perfect, we will fall short, but we should never give up the goal. And it's, it's amazing how much easier it becomes when you just simply say, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to develop something so that none of my food waste goes in the garbage. Okay, so you develop that and you put it in place. Then the next thing you say is, I'm going to develop something so that none of my paper or cardboard goes in the garbage. Whether that's using a local recycling option or, hey, I'm just going to shred all this shit up and throw in a compost pit. Whatever it is, you implement that, and you just keep going. And in the end, we need to even figure out, what do we do with our waste, our human waste? You know, I live on a property that doesn't have much fall, <laughs> so if I were to create like a uh, composting toilet system, I would really need to like build an outhouse up in the air. I'm, I'm not there yet. I probably should be, but I'm not. My septic system is recycling nutrient into my property. I'm not burdening the grid system at all. Um, I'm not harming the ecosystem at all with our septic. It's, it's, it's a natural cycle of breaking down, but I'm not putting that energy into my gardens. I do, to be blunt, take a pee on the compost pile whenever I can. Because I know that nitrogen will combine with that carbon and... And then that's not going down into the ground. It's being used up above the ground. But we're harvest, you know, we're, 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 at least, even with our septic, we're responsible for our own waste. We're not putting the burden somewhere else hundreds or thousands of miles away. Produce no waste. Design from your pattern to your details. And I describe this design with the end in mind. When I was in sales, and I was more of a sales consultant than your typical salesperson, I was in technology sales. A lot of times when I would finally get to sit down with decision makers and we were talking about technological solutions for their business, I would use what, we, what you call it in sales is the magic wand technique or the magic wand question. Let's, let's just throw your budget and your constraints out for a minute for this discussion. 
And understand, like, I'm one tiny piece of your technology solution, and I know that. So it doesn't benefit me to do that. It benefits you. Let's just work together on this. If I gave you a magic wand, what would this solution look like? What would it do? How would it function? Who would it serve? What would you be able to do that you can't do now? And if they would trust you enough to do that, because you've got to trust, because you think, oh, I'm being played by a salesman. No. 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 Because when we do this exercise, it could hurt me as a salesperson, right? It could be that when you explain that to me, I go, well, here's some ideas, but I don't have a, I don't have a product for that. But often, you'd have a piece in that design. And then if you could help them, because like, okay, now that we've described this, what are your limitations? Oh, it is budget. Okay. But now we know what we want it to do. So let's look at how we can alter the budget component and keep most of the things that you're looking for. And in the end, we were able to design a solution that worked well for them, gave them what they wanted, and stayed within their confines of their limitations. But what I always found being the holdup for those people is they had zoned in on this one thing. We want X, Y, Z. And so since they were so zoned in on that, they were trying to design around that Instead of just saying, okay, this is one thing, this, is a, this goes on the got-to-have list, but let's design the system independent of it. And we can do the same thing when it comes to designing properties and screw ourselves. If you've watched a bunch of videos and you think swells are cool and you want a food forest, you're going to jam that into your design whether it belongs there or not. If you live in a place with non-brittle um, landscape, and sufficient rainfall throughout the year, and you don't have the need to fill ponds or dams or any of the other things swales can do specifically, you probably shouldn't have a swale. You still might use swale-like features, like you might put your paths in on contour so they shed water evenly to both sides of the pathway and do plantings along them, but you're not going in there with an excavator digging swales. Because you're designing with the end in mind and the pattern of the end rather than the individual piece of the pattern. This is also about seeing the larger pattern in landforms. It's about seeing the larger pattern in human activity. If I had the exact same property, I mean the exact same property, for two totally different families who wanted a lot of the same things, I might do very different designs. If I have a family who's going to work from home and be there, I might do a lot more with livestock than a family that's going to be home Monday through Friday when they're not working and away from home on most weekends. So the pattern of the people on the land is important is as important as the pattern of the land itself. If I'm going to design from pattern down to details, it's all patterns. It's not just the visible patterns. It's often what you would call the invisible pattern. In sales, we refer to it as the invisible product. If I'm selling you insurance, it's not visible. I'm selling you the invisible in the words of Harry Beckwith. Right? I'm selling you a thing. You don't get a thing. You get a piece of paper that says you have insurance now. Right? But it's important. It matters. When something goes wrong, it's there to cover it, and you need to understand what it covers and what it doesn't, or you'll buy the wrong insurance. When it comes to designing from pattern, start at the top pattern, design down to the details from there, you actually have to understand the pattern. 
if I go in and put a high-maintenance system relative to permaculture, still be low-maintenance compared to a lot of other systems, but it requires you know, a significant amount of hands-on for someone that's not going to do it, it's a bad design. For somebody that might want to design a, a, a property that's very intensive gardens and things like that, they eat a lot of vegetables, they have the time, they enjoy doing it, that's what I want to design them. For someone else, I might want to design a property with a bunch of fish ponds on it and mostly trees, and many of those trees are probably not even going to be you know, fruit trees and things like that. I may design them with, with shade and, and protection and security and privacy in mind. I may design a system that's mostly designed to feed livestock for someone that's highly carnivorous. I have to understand the pattern of the people, the animals, the weather, the landform, the flows through the property. I have to understand all those patterns to do an effective design. Next, integrate rather than segregate. And I, I look at this mostly as a function stacking and connection understanding. There is a lot of this kind of, I call it purple breather, you know, wokeism that's attached itself to permaculture, which permaculture goes back to the 70s, and, and, and this whole modern version of this shit didn't even exist back then, right? They're not synonymous, but that group of people, any group of people, to be fair, If you like what you hear and it resonates with you to your line of thinking, you'll co-opt it as your own. But when, when we talk about integration rather than segregation in design, you know, we're not talking about making sure we have a transgendered Mexican involved in our group. If we happen to have one, then we need to find a role for them. It's a better way to think about it if you're going to invoke that type of thinking at all. But more what we're talking about is making sure that when we design functionality and flow and elements into our design, that they work rather together rather than independently through function stacking and interconnection. So if I want to grow beans and I need a support, okay, and I build a trellis, and all it does is you grow beans and they go up the trellis, we have not integrated, we've segregated. We've created a bean system over here by itself. Well, do you have anything that would fit on that trellis with beans? Well, maybe you have some sort of flowering pollinator thing like trumpet vine, which we're going to have to control if we put it with beans so it doesn't overtake everything, but that would bring in hummingbirds and other pollinators, not just two things. Do you have anything that needs shade? Might want to consider where that trellis goes when you're going to have shade. What happens in the winter when the beans go away? If we have something that needs shade in the summer but needs more sun in the winter and can carry through in a long-season climate, then that's the thing that we want to plant there. If we have something planted behind the trellis, we can also have a structure behind the trellis so we cool the structure. And that's just a bean trellis. Instead of taking these elements and, like, This is where the garden goes. This is where the chickens go. How do the chicken and the garden work together? And it does apply to people. How do we understand the, the natural behaviors of a family to understand what to give them to do? If moms, let's make it real simple, mom's a morning person, dad's an evening person, right? Mom is a work-from-home mom, or mom is a housewife. Nothing wrong with that. So mom does not go off to work in the morning. Well, maybe mom should let the chickens out, take the compost out to the chicken compost pile, fill up their water and food. 
maybe dad should then see, since he's an evening person, to putting them to bed, making sure they have what they need, making sure everything's secure, making sure nothing that needs to be kind of looked over before the sun goes down is looked over because his natural function in his family is to be available at that time versus the morning when he's getting in the car and going off to work. And that's nothing to do with gender roles, by the way, for those of you that have to go there, as, as few of you are, as there are in this audience, because that could be completely flipped around. Maybe dad works from home and dad's a morning person and mom works away from home and mom's an evening person. I don't know. You have to design with that integration in mind. Again, of not just the things, but the people and the energies. If you have a certain place that the sun always hits, that would probably be a good place to put anything that needs to catch solar energy. And if you have a place where the sun never hits and you need something to be cool or shaded, you probably want to put it there. And then if you're going to create either of those environments, you want to think about that when you do it. We don't, And this is also gets into not making monocultures. But we'll save that for another principle. Use small and slow solutions. The way I always phrase this is obtain the greatest effect with the least effort. If we do things in a way to try to get a really fast result, we generally engage in destructive behaviors. The quickest way to get a, a, a garden to give you a yield is to go buy a great big sack of 10-10 fertilizer and apply it exactly the way the bag says to do it and water your garden. If you do that, you will get a reasonable production result in your first year and your second year and maybe your third and ongoing. You'd probably do sort of okay until your pest problems and weed problems start to become really bad, but it'll work. And it's, it, 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 it is a rapid solution, but it's also radical in the changes that it makes. And it allows you to con convince yourself that it's okay to keep taking from that ground without providing new life into it. And as the system then requires you to start adding pesticides, again, this is a fast solution. If you have a bug problem, and, you, and if you're at least smart enough to go, this is the particular bug or bugs I have, and you get the right pesticide and apply it at the right time, it will flat kill the shit out of them. And they'll stop eating your plants. I did it when I was a kid because my grandfather had limits to what he did naturally. When the cabbage loppers got too big on the broccoli and the cauliflower and the cabbage, I went down there with a duster and seven dust and dusted it. Yeah. I wouldn't do it now, but I did it then. It worked for a time. But it wasn't the right solution. What the slow solution is, let's farm the soil. Let's feed the soil life. You may not get the yield that you would have in the first season. It'll be a slow solution with limited effort. Because when you take that 10-10 fertilizer, 10-10-10 fertilizer, and you throw it down, maybe that's easy for you, but you're not factoring in all of the energy that went into its production, are you? What had to happen? Somebody mined There's byproducts from fossil fuels in there, and this is not vilifying fertilizer. This is, just, this, is, this is how much energy. So eventually it had to be refined out, made into some substance, some, some form that you could use, like a crumble, and to be put into a bag. 
had to be shipped to a warehouse, from a warehouse to a store, and you had to drive there in your car. How much, how much energy, how big is that 50-pound bag of fertilizer in energy cost and effort? How massive of industry is that? It's huge. If we simply take the leaves that grew on our home, the grass clippings from our home, the poop that comes out of our animals' butts, all our waste food streams, mulch from the guy that trimmed the trees down the road for our neighbors and dumped it on our property, and we apply that over time. It's a small solution for a much bigger result. Because in time, that soil that was hard red clay or black chunky clay or sandy loam or whatever it was starts to look like potting soil. As we sequester carbon into it, as we grow life cycles, as we grow worms, it's a small, slow solution with a maximum impact. Next up, use and value diversity. And I always said this is nothing is natural in a monoculture. This is another one where people try to use it to justify their woke bullshit that didn't exist when the discipline was developed. Um, and I don't have any problem with diversity of people. I think it's a great idea. I also think that we do separate elements that are detrimental to each other. And two people that hate each other have no reason to be forced to be together. Nor do we want to take a dog and force it into a situation where it's tempted to use its predator instinct to kill livestock. We have to train the dog to deal with the situation. And now the dog can become the animal's protector. But if we're not going to put that effort into, then we need to segregate the dog from the chicken. It's one or the other. And there's not necessarily a right versus a wrong answer. It's how do we design that system to work for us. But when it comes to our gardens, if we have like a pepper bed, a tomato bed, etc., man, we're to be honest, we're still ahead of most farms because we don't have a 40-acre or 400 or 4,000 acre of corn or soy or wheat. But the more we combine plants together, the more we build resiliency into the whole system. And it's because diversity ends up feeding each other when properly managed. So if you think about it, if I take 10 peppers and plant them in one garden bed with nothing else, they need the same amount of sun, the same amount of nutrient, the same specific nutrient profile, the same insects can help them, and the same insects can harm them. And I can keep going, but just with those five things. If I plant 10 different plants in there, they have different amounts of nutrient, different specific nutrients at different times that they need. They're going to have different root structures. They're going to stratify at different layers in the soil. They're going to have different exudates that attract different soil organisms that have their own different exudates and their own ability to mine minerals, which is, I've always said, we should call minerals. That's, what, that's where the root of mineral is from, minor roll. Minerals are mined from the earth by biological processes in gardens and in proper horticulture and natural symptoms. That's how your plant gets selenium. Because a little critter that's attracted to its exudate, that goes and eats its exudate, poops out selenium so the plant can suck it up. Because selenium was always there, but is it available to the plant? This is what happens when we start valuing diversity. They're going to have different insects that can harm them. So if I'm a if I'm a pest insect and I like to eat pepper leaves 
and I come along even just a couple dozen pepper plants, well, this is a good place. This is a good place to, 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 to mate, to produce my young, and to live out my short life as an insect and make more insects. That's what they do. If I come to a place and there's a pepper plant, and next to it there's a basil plant, and next to that's a fennel plant, and there's a tomato plant, first of all, I'm a little bit confused. I'm not really sure. There's different smells. There's different sights. But here is a pepper plant. But I'm also kind of going to get that feeling when you're in a neighborhood you're not familiar with, and you kind of go around a corner, and things change a little bit, and it's a little darker, and you start worrying, it looks like somebody's going to shiv you in the back. Because if you're an insect, almost inevitably, if you're a pest insect, as we think of them as humans, there's something that will shiv you in the back and eat you. Well, when we create that diversity and we of, of plants, we create a diversity of insects, and the predator population goes up. Thinking about it another way, our attempt to eradicate what we consider a pest is our biggest mistake in horticulture and in agriculture. Because you want the lion. You want the tiger. You want the leopard. If you're a gardener, you want the lion, the tiger, the leopard, and the bear in your garden, metaphorically speaking. You want the praying mantis. You want the wheel bug. You want the ladybug. Right? You want the spider. They're all predators. You want the wasps, the parasitic wasps. You want the wasps that just flat out kill and eat for meat. You want all of them. You want the predators. So imagine that you're a wildlife biologist and you go to a place and they say, we want to increase our lion population on this reserve. And you look around and there's no wildebeest, there's no gazelles, there's no antelope. And you say, what the hell? And they say, well, you know, they were eating too much of the, the, the vegetation. So what we did is we, we, we got rid of them because we only want the lions. Well, after you kind of looked around and made sure you weren't being punked, it wasn't some modern agricultural or biological version of Candid Camera or something like that, or Ashton Kutcher didn't bring punked back, if you realized these people were serious, you, you would literally be like, I don't think I can help you. You're too stupid to do this. I don't know what your, your lions are living on now, but your lions need prey. Yeah, the lions need prey. So you actually need some level of what we consider pest insect, if you want a sustainable and reliable population of predatory insects to feed upon them. And it's think of how counter that is to what we how we think in the modern world when it comes to pest management. How can you have the lion without the wildebeest and the gazelle and the antelope? And the answer is you can't. That's what lions eat. No matter how much people want to promote veganism, the vast majority of organisms on the planet are far from vegan. In the words of Bill Mollison, in the end, the trees will eat you. The trees are predators. They, they, they will feed on your dead body at some point. Um, next up, use edges and value the marginal. And I've always said that the edges of systems have the highest productivity of whatever is being produced. This is not even difficult to understand in the physical world, right? You can, you can teach yourself this lesson if you doubt it in, in a matter of seconds. All you have to do is go somewhere, especially in the spring or summer, um, wh where there's a field 
that goes into the woods that's not maintained with like a hiking trail and try to walk from the field directly into the woods. That's all you have to do. And you will find yourself fighting through gnarls and brambles and briars and things like that. And assuming that the woodland is somewhat mature with older trees, in only a few feet of doing so, you'll get in past the edge and it will be very park-like. There'll be openings and glades and pathways that you can take and, and you'll be able to walk through the woods mostly uninterfered with. Not everywhere. I mean, you can go places where it's heavily full of like buck laurel and things like that. But mostly once you're into the woodland, it's fairly open. Relatively speaking, there's a canopy, but you can move. And when you walk through the field, you can walk through the field. But when you get to the point where the field and the forest edge combine, there will be massive abundance. And this is so true everywhere. Go to a lake where people that know how to fish are fishing in boats. Where will you see most of them? They're going to be along shorelines. They're going to be fishing bridges. They're going to be fishing docks, jetties. Why? It's an edge. And then you'll see some people maybe targeting a species like white bass or striper way out in the middle of the lake. Where's their edge? Odds are there's a what you call a hump, and that's creating an edge. Or there's a bunch of phytoplankton, and that phytoplankton got blown by, by winds and currents into some cloud, and that attracted a whole bunch of zooplankton, little critters, little animal critters. And those two things combined, because there's a big cloud there, that's attracted bait fish. And then the bait fish came. And once the bait fish come, you know what happens? The predatory fish and the predatory birds come. That's why when you're fishing for white bass or striper or many other fish, you watch for birds. Because you can see the birds easier than you can see the fish hitting the surface. And when you go there, if you don't know what you're looking at, it looks very much like you're just out in the middle of nothing. But the, the edge is the bait fish edge. It's the plankton edge. This is one of those ones people try to break it, but you cannot. The greatest productivity is on the edge. The greatest That can be an assembly line. It can be a garden. It can be a forest. It can be a community. It's where the interaction between elements occurs that productivity is highest. And we need to think about that in our design. Last one, use and respond to change. And the way I always say this is the only thing constant is change. And all change is opportunity. Even bad changes are opportunities. You know, right now we're looking at things like the Great Reset. I'm not exactly thinking this is a good idea, but I see opportunity in it. COVID is a disaster. More so the government's response to it than the illness itself. It's still an opportunity. I prospered in 2020, did you? The reason I did is because I came at it from a permaculture mindset. Not just like opportunistic from a profiteering standpoint. You guys know I don't do that. But I look like, what, are, what does this now give me an opportunity to do? What does it give me an opportunity to teach? What ears are now open that prior to this were closed? What can I learn? How can I adapt to this? How can my adaptation give me an advantage over those who do not adapt? And again, that's not necessarily you know direct competitivism of like, I want to win, I want to beat you. But hey, I want to succeed. 
And if you succeed, there will be enough people that fail on their own to make it look like you've won, at least to the casual observer. But when we look at our property, we have to understand that things are going to change. That tree that you planted that's small today will be big tomorrow. When it's big, it will produce more biomass. It will produce more shade. It will infiltrate deeper into the ground. How does that all play into what you're doing? That wood lot across the street that your kids played in, somebody might buy it someday and build a house there, and it may ruin your view. But what opportunity comes with it? Maybe the people that move in are cool. There will always be change. There will always be change, and change will implement new restrictions on what you do. And your adaptation to those restrictions will lead to new design. And the better the designer you are, the more elegant you will design, the more those restrictions become evident. Especially if you see the restriction as an opportunity to do something that people don't think can be done, and you just love the challenge. Or to do something you previously couldn't do, But now that you're restricted on one end, you're opened up on another. Maybe everybody's so focused on this new restriction that nobody's paying attention to you violating the old one that they're not really paying attention to anymore. Who knows? But you have to be willing to respond to change. There's, there's two types of people in the world if you compare them to trees. There's the oaks and the willows. I'm far more an oak and I try to be more willow-like, and my wife is far more willow, and she struggles to be a little more oak-like. The oak is strong and mighty and determined in its way. It can go through incredible storms and stand and not be blown down. It can be there for centuries, and it's a protector of its own forest. But when the storm's strong enough, it can be destroyed. The willow gives in the wind. It doesn't live as long. And it can have every branch stripped from it. But it gives enough that when the storm subsides, it grows back. And in our lives, we have to struggle with a balance between are we an oak or are we a willow? And what can we gain from being a little bit of both, being kind of an oak-willow hybrid in some ways, knowing when to yield and to give, knowing when to stand strong, knowing when to protect and defend, and knowing when to shelter with shade, and knowing how to do both well. This is how you view this principle of using and responding to change, because the only thing that you can depend on is that things will change. That's what permaculture really is. So if you thought it was just permanent agriculture, if you thought it was just planting trees, if you thought it was just swales, if you thought it was just hippies rolling around in the mud, if you thought it was just compost instead of fertilizer, even now you've only seen a sliver of what can be done with this way of thinking. I hope it opens you to new possibilities. I hope it helps you to think about using and responding to change. And maybe in this case, the change is simply your change in your understanding and your knowledge of this place that opportunity exists. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. I hope you uh, enjoyed it today. If you did and you want to help support this show and the work that we do, remember you can always do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. No matter what you buy, if you start there, you help us out. Today's item of the day is something I realized I had never actually 
made it an item of the day, even though like I've sold thousands of them, as I've talked about hydroponics and aquaponics and seed starting systems, and that is the CZ Garden Net Pot Cups. This is actually kind of fits in one of the principles I talked about today with thinking about the lifetime cost of something versus the upfront cost. There's definitely cheaper ones, and they're really cheap, and they're really weak, and they last about one season if you're lucky. They get brittle and they break. These things last. I don't know. I want to say they're lifetime purchases, but I've got some that are two years old, and they're still brand new for all intents and purposes. I've got a few that I've accidentally stepped on. You kind of push them back out, and then they work again. Um, where, like, thin, cheap ones that I bought of net pot cups, like, you step on them, it's done. It's over. It's waste. And we shouldn't be producing any waste if we don't have to. Um, these are fantastic. They come in a lot of different sizes. Your primary ones people use, two, three, four, five, and six inches. Right now, the four and five inches are currently sold out. I'll be keeping an eye on them for you. But the most The most tactical ones, the ones that are like the easiest, that have the broadest use to me are the two-inch ones. The rapid rooter plugs fit right inside them perfectly. They're fine for growing out lettuces and, and basils and stuff like that, arugula, etc. That's what I use them for mostly. And for starting plants, they're perfect because you, you, you grow them to just a starting size. You pop that little rapid rooter out of there and you drop it into your garden or your other system. Um, I do have a... Secondary recommendation, uh, the company is called Cool Runner. They make a pretty good one as well if you need four inches right now. I expect that these will be back in stock soon, the larger sizes. I will be keeping an eye on them. When they come back in stock, I will run this item as an item of the day again. I do recommend, though, that if you want to be using net cups for garden, plant starting, aquaponics, hydroponics, etc., that you stock up on high-quality ones when they're available because I think that we are going to have more food shortages and more pressure put on this stuff. Last year, when I started really pushing hydro, a lot of you wrote me, I can't get this, I can't get that. Fertilizers, everything disappeared. I think in a different way you can expect more of that to continue. And if we've learned anything in 2020, it should have been that our supply lines are just in time delivery, and it takes a tiny hiccup to create a major disruption. So this is something that doesn't go bad, lasts a long time, get it when you can, implement it into your systems, and use it over and over and over again. Again, CZ net cups. You want to buy cheap ones, go ahead, but if you want to buy once and not have to buy again, at least for a very long time, look to CZ Gardens net cups. With that, let's talk about our song of the day today. Song of the day today is Voices by Chris Young. And this is, I, I like songs like this. They kind of play on things that we assume. So if somebody said, I hear voices in my head, you say, yeah, okay, maybe someone needs some medication in a padded room, and maybe someone needs, you know, a straight jacket, or at least a little extra caution and care. However, most of us hear voices in our head, and often they come from those who have been mentors and teachers in our life. We get to a point where, like, I'm going to do this thing, and then we hear the old man saying, Son, it's not a good idea. Don't do that. Or I'm not going to do this thing, and you hear your grandfather saying, Boy, take that chance. All right? That's the kind of voices that are in this song by Chris Young. You know, you can have a couple beers, but don't let it go too far. Those things. 
And there's good and bad in this. This is something I think we need to understand as parents and grandparents. There's a lot of stuff we tell people like that in our lives, our kids, our grandkids, etc., people that we advise as business mentors, etc., as podcasters. And we intentionally tell them these things because we know it's good advice. The thing is, they're always listening even when we're not mindful of what we're saying. And you want to make sure that the voices you're planting are voices for the benefit of the individual hearing them. Because otherwise, remember Ricky Bobby, the movie, the funny comedy movie with Will Ferrell in it? And uh, he, always, he always said, if you ain't first, you're last. And when people ask him what that's about, he says, my dad told me that. And when he finally meets his dad, he says to his dad, if you ain't first, you're last. And his dad's like, what the hell do you mean? If you There's second, there's third, there's fourth, there's a whole bunch of stuff between first and last. And he's like, no, you said if you're not first, you're last. I've lived my whole life based on this. And his dad says, I was high when I said that. Be careful. And I'm not saying necessarily that you'd be high. Be careful the voices you're planning, especially in your kids, your grandkids, etc. Because they will hear your voice in the future. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You could say I'm a little bit crazy. You could call me insane. Walking around with all these whispers. Running around here in my brain. I just can't help but hear them. Man, I can't avoid it. I hear voices. I hear voices like my dad saying, work that job, but don't work your life away. And mama telling me to drop some cash in the offering plate on Sunday. And granddad saying, you can have a few, but don't ever cross that line. Yeah, I Turns out I'm pretty dang lucky for all that good advice. Those hard to find words of wisdom hold up here in my mind. And just when I've lost my way, I've got too many choices. I hear voices. I hear voices like my dad saying quit that team and you'll be a quitter for the rest of your life and mama telling me to say a prayer every time I lay down at night and grandma saying if you find the one you better treat her right yeah I hear voices all the time Sometimes I try to ignore them, but I thank God for them, cause they made me who I am. My dad saying work that job, but don't work your life away, and mama telling me to drop some cash in the offering plate on Sunday.